You're listening to KZOM, Oleander Public Radio. The Tentacles from Below by Anthony Gilmore. Chapter 6 The Monster with the Armlets of Gold. Hemingway Bowman's ardent wish, after he was whipped quickly through the round exit port of the Octopi submarine, was for a quick, clean death. The horror and mystery of his situation had left him with one conscious emotion, that he was afraid. The worst had been when he was hauled through the port, when, expecting anything, he had been able to see nothing in the dark, water-filled mystery ship. Deliberate tentacles had stroked over every inch of his body, tentacles that were not metal-scaled, as had been the arms of the creature that captured him. It was then that he guessed the true purpose of the metal suits the octopi wore, to protect their bodies against the lesser pressure near the surface of the sea. Inside the submarine they did not need them. He decided that the ship was used for rapidly transporting large numbers of the octopi to distant regions, and also for a weapon of offense and defense. The intelligence of the cuttlefish astounded him. Keith had got away. At least he knew that, and he thanked God for it. His bold stroke had not been in vain, his sacrifice not useless. After the inspection of the tentacles, Hemi had been shoved into a corner of the octopi submarine. He had felt cords wrapped around his body. After being thus secured, he was left to himself. He was utterly alone, except for strange, vague shadows that floated through the darkness. Shadows that heated his brain as he realized how many of the devilfish there were. Hours that seemed like endless days passed. Bowman concluded that the submarine had gone straight through the cavern and emerged finally into what seemed to be another sea. Dead silence filled the ship. What was happening he could only guess. The craft seemed to run on forever. Never once did tentacles brush or inspect him again. Finally the ship stopped, and a great round door opened in one wall. By the soft bluish glow that seeped in, Hemi caught a glimpse of his surroundings, and his gorge rose at the sight. The ship was literally filled with a slowly waving forest of long black tentacles. Weird instruments, unlike anything he had ever seen, were grouped around the walls, and before them attendant octopi poised, their hideous eyes fixed and steady. There were no dividing decks as in the NX-1. The craft was one huge shell. Then came furious activity. The door fell shut again, and the ship shot off at a great speed. Hemi felt sure they were advancing again to attack the NX-1, and at once began to try to reach his comrades through radiophone. He knew that Wells would come back. Finally he caught a human voice, and heard the NX-1's radio operator shout to the commander that he, Bowman, was alive and calling. But when he tried to speak further, the American craft's radio was silent, and then, in the octopi submarine, had come a soft glow of violet. Was it a more deadly weapon than the paralyzing ray? In great suspense the prisoner waited. Silence. Silence. Horrible doubts beset his mind. Was Keith refraining from firing his torpedoes because he, Bowman, was on board the enemy boat? The thought stung him. He tried desperately again to reach Wells, but there was no answer. Were the Americans dead? Age-long minutes passed. Then the exit port opened, and several metal-clad octopi swam out. Hemi had a glimpse of the NX-1 lying silent and apparently lifeless on the sea floor, a gaping hole in her bow. 
As if to taunt him with the sight, the creatures left the round door open, and presently Bowman beheld the octopi open the NX-1's starboard exit port and enter. Later the port swung open again, and he saw the monsters emerge, each gripping several men clad in yellow sea-suits. That they were dead or victims of the ray was obvious from the way they limply dangled. The exit port closed, and darkness filled the octopi ship. Hemi Bowman panted with the futile effort to break his bonds. "'You devils!' he yelled in blind rage, exhausted. "'Why don't you take me with them? Take me! Take me, damn your stinking hides!' When Keith Wells was taken from the silent NX-1, a host of astounding impressions swarmed his brain. Swinging lightly at the end of his captor's tentacle, he strove as best he could, with eyes rigidly fixed straight ahead, to grasp his new surroundings. He had, first, one flash of the octopi ship lying quite close to them, its hulk as always immobile and apparently lifeless, and inside it, he was sure, was his friend and first officer, Hemi Bowman, a captive. He saw that the octopi submarine had towed the NX-1 into one of the weird mound cities. His own ship was lying in what seemed a kind of public square, and crowds of black octopi were swarming around it as he and his crew were brought out. Shooting straight off the square ran one of the wide streets he had previously seen from above, and on each side the brown mound buildings rose. Their details were hazy, because of the cuttlefish inhabitants who swam thickly in front of them. His captors started their march down this broad street. Great crowds of reddish-colored octopi clustered on each side of it. Other swarms hung almost motionless, except for their constantly writhing tentacles, above, so that their line of progress was through what resembled a restless, living tunnel of repulsive black flesh, snaky arms, and huge unblinking eyes. Keith felt faint from the horror of it. Thousands of the monsters were there, all hanging in the soft, blue-glowing water and occasionally, as he floated almost horizontally in his captor's firm grip, his legs would brush the wall of clammy flesh, or perhaps one of the tentacles would reach out as if to touch him. The octopus that held him swam some five feet off the street bed itself. At intervals the thick swarm on either side would part for a second, and Keith could glimpse the huge mound buildings, ever growing larger, with round entrance holes dotted all over their smooth surface, above as well as the sides. The march was ghastly. Their captors were taking them through the heart of the water metropolis, displaying their human captives as did the Caesars in Roman triumphs of old. The swarming crowds of tentacled monsters grew thicker as they progressed, and their tentacles began to whip more quickly, as if anger was burning in their loathsome bodies. Keith noted the menace of their sharp-beaked jaws, and the sickening sucker-discs on the livid underside of the tentacles. As far as he could see, the swarms fell in behind the procession after it had passed, following them. Where? Just as Wells felt himself on the verge of fainting, the procession turned to the right and entered the largest mound-building of all, a vast dome rising in the very center of the octopi metropolis. They continued through a corridor perhaps twenty feet high, from which at intervals other corridors branched, held by one arm and ever and again, turning helplessly over in his horizontal transit, Keith caught glimpses of walls covered with intricate designs on a basic eight-armed motif, designs of artistic value that gave evidence of culture and civilization. 
The passage ended as suddenly as it had begun, and they came into the main body of a gigantic building. The commander could hardly credit his eyes. The place resembled a stadium, and was so vast that he felt dwarfed to nothingness. The domed roof soared far above in misty bluish light. On the floor, exactly beneath the center of the great dome, was a raised platform, and on it a dais resembling a very wide throne. Around the dais a score or more of octopi, officials, Keith supposed, were grouped. Rapidly the creatures following the procession swam into the chamber. Monstrously large as the place was, the floor soon was filled with the thick flood of cuttlefish which swarmed in from many doors. Keith, held with the other captives just to one side of the hole he had entered by, began to think that they must soon refuse to let any more in, when, to his surprise, he saw the latest arrivals begin to form a gallery twenty feet above those on the ground floor, and when this was extended far back and completely filled, start yet another above it, and another, and another. In ten minutes the mighty hall was crowded with countless layers of the cold-eyed monsters, each layer angling up from the central dais so that all could see. God, the commander thought, nothing but solidly packed devilfish, all the way to the dome, a slaughter pit, and we, of course, are to be the cattle." Minutes passed. The throne was still empty, and the thousands in the amphitheatre seemed waiting for an occupant. Keith wished he was able to close his eyes. The restless, never-ceasing weaving of the countless tentacles in the levels above made the scene a nightmare. Some waved slowly, others whipped excitedly, but never for an instant did one pause. The movements were like the never-ceasing shifting and swaying of the trunks and feet of elephants. In the dim glow the huge chamber seemed to be filled with one fantastic million-tentacled monster that stared with its thousand eyes down on the forlorn group of puny human beings. As if at a command, the arms of the octopi on the platform suddenly began to weave in perfect unison in some weird ceremony. First they swayed out towards the waiting captives, then they swerved slowly to the empty throne, then came back a few quick excited whippings, and once more the long arms reached out at the small group at the entrance. This went on for some minutes. Then, very suddenly, a creature swam up from what must have been an opening in the floor onto the dais throne. Keith saw it well. It was an octopus, a giant amongst octopi, and Wells knew at once it was the ruler of the realm, the lord and master of the swarming galleries and the cities of mound buildings. It was larger than its fellows, by a full three feet, and, encircling each great tentacle just where it joined the central mass of flesh, was a broad, glittering band of polished gold, eight thick armlets that ringed the creature's revolting head-body with a circle of gleaming pagan splendor. Keith could almost fancy that a certain royal air hung over the monster. The huge, unblinking eyes of the king stared at the horror-frozen captives. One long tentacle lifted slowly upward, and their captors at once started towards the throne with them. The score of octopi on each side stilled their weaving arms. A battery of emotionless eyes drilled into Wells's paralyzed body. He felt faint. Unquestionably the horrible ceremony was leading up to some form of cold-blooded sacrifice. The monarch stretched a mighty arm towards Keith, and as in a dream he felt himself lifted out of his guard's grasp. The snake-like tentacle gripped him about the waist, and held him dangling like a puppet twenty feet in the water, 
while the two deadly eyes stared steadily at him. He was brought closer, until the hideous central mass, with its cruel beaked jaw and ink-sack hanging behind, was no more than a foot away. Then another arm stroked slowly along the commander's helpless body. Once or twice it prodded sharply, and Wells felt a surge of fear, for his sea-suit might break. Deliberately the prying tentacle moved over him, delicately feeling his helmet, his weighted feet, his legs. Keith Wells grew angry. He was being inspected like a trapped monkey. He, commander of the NX-1, representative of one of the world's mightiest nations, prodded and stared at by this fish, this octopus. A great rage suffused him, and with a terrific effort he tried to jab his arms into one of those devilish eyes, but try as he might his body would not respond. He could not move a finger. For a long time the loathsome inspection continued, until the monstrous king seemed satisfied. Wells was handed back. There followed an interminable period in which nothing whatever was done, as far as he could see. He was sure that they must be talking, debating. But no sound reached his ears through the tight helmet. All the time the endless motion in the swarming levels above went on. It became hazy, dreamlike, and in spite of himself the commander began to feel drowsy. The weaving and swaying was producing a hypnotic effect. At last the desire to sleep grew overpowering. Wells and his men were more than half unconscious when their original captors finally pulled them back from the royal presence, and began a humble retreat from the throne-room. Slowly they backed to the entrance. Keith's last drowsy glimpse was of a grotesque, gold-ringed monster on a throne, with a score of smaller tentacled creatures around him, and a vast haze of weaving tentacles and unblinking eyes above. They passed from the huge chamber. The commander felt delirious, as in a nightmare, but he knew that they were again in the long corridor, and that their captors were taking them further into the mighty building, further from the street outside. He glimpsed great rooms branching off the corridor, and swarms of black octopi inside them. The light became fainter, and at last the procession turned into a separate, rough-walled chamber, dimly lit and empty. Wells felt the grip around his arm loosen and he floated limply to the floor among his men. He slept. End of chapter 6